This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, I know you're a very creative teacher who is probably always reinventing their lessons in the classroom. And I know you go to SS Chat and you go to Twitter sometimes or go online for, you know, to get to find resources to commune with people. But when you're really like digging into the details of a lesson, who are the people that you go to to get advice or talk to about what you're doing? So this is hard because it's hard to find time to talk to other people. You know, other people are busy. Oftentimes I'll go to my department head and I'll just be like, do you have a few minutes? And then I'll kind of like, I'll run through some of the highlights as to like what I'm kind of looking for. But I feel like a lot of my growth in terms of like developing lessons is through failure. I fail and then I try to figure out what did I do and how can I kind of get back on track for next time. I feel like, uh, again, it's the time, having time and then having other people who are always there for me is sometimes difficult. But when I can, I do go to my department head. Do you usually identify failure just by like your feel of how the lesson went and students' reactions? Or do you actually look at like, you know, their performance on on some kind of assessment or their ability to, you know, answer questions about the topic or engage in a conversation? So I think the immediate, like, you can feel it. Like when something didn't land, you can totally feel it. And so that's kind of like my first thing, like, I'll do a lesson. If it doesn't go well, like immediately, I'll try to like think through things. I think then is like a second thing the next day. Yeah, the next day or two, I'll go back to see like, if there was an assignment or an exit ticket or something. I'll look at those and try to assess that. But I feel like there's that gut feeling you get when you just have people or students just kind of staring at you or, or if it's just not like you just, oh, it's not just that feeling. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. you I, I always feel it like when I put a lot of prep into a lesson and it like feels like it bombs and it's really deflating. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I remember there was a, an anecdote in a book by Frank Smith called The Book of Learning and Forgetting, which I, is a you book that really helped me think through, you know, what students, what learning means. Yeah. And he said, you can usually tell whether a, le- a students are learning by just looking at their body language and their faces and like how they're reacting to the lesson. Um, because people who are interested in things, you can generally tell. Is that, do you yeah. feel that's right? No, yeah, I, I do. I do. And then one of the neat things, like when you teach things back to back, like when you're like, okay, well, what if I try to try this? I also like tinkering around with them to see if it gets a little bit better. Uh, Cause obviously sometimes classes have like a different feel to them or different students just take things differently. So it also does get a little bit complicated because your students are going to be different per class. Sometimes things that just like go like uh, really well, some periods just bomb the next and you're, oof, that's frustrating, but you're like, ah, what did I do here? At least if it bombs in like one class, you can blame it on those students, right? It's not your fault. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess you can, but usually it's like you read them wrong. Like you yeah, read know, it, like if you had this whole thing, like you read it wrong, like there's something going on 
but yeah, I think a lot of times if particularly when I'm really excited about something, I will also like, I'll analyze, like I'll think through things and then I will go to my department head. He just seems to have more time. And so I feel like that's kind of where, like, I would love to sit around with a bunch of colleagues, like every now and then to talk about this kind of stuff. But like, when you really get into it, it's tough to mm-hmm. find the time. I wish that, you know, things were a little bit different. I wish that they were opportunities for teachers to get together, to like, you know, struggle through things, to talk through things, to uh, play around with some ideas and concepts. But in all honesty, like, unless you have some sort of like a, a PD day, it's very difficult to to find like dedicated time to, to sit around and, and chat through the stuff. And very, and of course, there's a different initiative that your school's doing. Right. And very rarely are they going to set aside the PD day to work on lessons together. They're going to you know, always give you something, right? Whether it's a presentation or some planned thing. The other thing I'm curious about your department chair is, do they give really nice, critical, pointed feedback? Because I also know that there's a tendency with some people, you know, I will ask them for advice and they want to be nice. So they won't like tell me if they think something's not good. And then, so then I don't want to go to them because I'm like, I appreciate you being nice, but I actually really want you to tell me something you don't like. I can always decide whether to use your feedback or not yeah. if i don't have it it's hard to improve a lesson i hate what's the thing that's like the the cookie like or the oreo cookie method of you know, like you give people like you make people feel nice then you know probably not a cookie because a cookie is delicious who the heck but like there's this <laughs> method of like giving feedback where you say something nice then you say something mean and then you say something nice and uh i hate that like, <laughs> I don't need to hear the the, the nice stuff. Yeah. Just give me the, like, give me like the critical feedback. Like I, like I want to be told like, this is where you, th- this would have been better. I, I would much rather, you know, prefer kind of just hearing it than getting like, but you did this for like, your colors are really great. It's like, oh my goodness, right. that is not very, okay. Thank you for sandwiching your, your uh, criticism. That's it. Sandwich. Not as good as a cookie. Not that's that is very true for most most sandwiches. There's some sandwiches that are cookie quality. Yeah, yeah, but I think when you like, if you lined up cookies versus sandwiches, yeah, like cookies take it. That's true. It's true. Well, I, I think this is a challenge. This is really something I honestly struggle with, and because I I spend a lot of time on my lesson planning and get really in my own head about like especially when I'm creating something big and I've been working on it for a long time. Oh yeah. And, and I, and in higher ed, it's the same thing, right? Like I, I don't have people that I feel like I can go to because I don't, I feel guilty for taking their time or there's just not many people in my area that would care about what I'm doing. Right. I'm a lot, you're a lot more isolated in higher ed. So I don't have a hallway of social studies teachers. So I'd like to think of some ways we could build it even into the system, right? I feel like this, that's what we should do. And I, I always feel like working together is like one of the best ways to improve education. And it seems like hardly anyone like has a system for it. Yeah, I would agree. Well, maybe we could bring someone in who's actually thought about this and would have some kind of advice about just the topic in general, because it seems like it's not getting done much. I wonder if we have someone who could uh, help us out with, particularly someone who's already been on the show. So it's like a fr- yeah, you know, it's like us going to our friend for some advice, specifically about how we get advice on our lessons. I'm in. We would like to welcome into the podcast, friend of the pod, back for the second time, Jada Colmeyer. Welcome. Thank you very much. I felt like you were like phoning a friend or something. That's exactly <laughs> what we want. That's what this isn't that what this entire podcast is, Michael? <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, absolutely. 
Um, Dr. Janet Kohlmeyer, do you mind telling us or reminding us a little bit about who you are? Sure. Thank you so much, uh, Dan and Michael. It's always fun to do this. I was super, super nervous the first time I did it, and you guys made it really fun. So it's a pleasure to be to be back. My name is Jada Kohlmeyer, and I'm a professor of social studies education at Auburn University. And I've been doing this a really long time now. I've been doing, I've been, I taught for 10 years in Kansas public school. And now I've been here at Auburn for 19 years. So I'm one of the old fogies on campus with the gray hairs to prove it. So, but yeah, this is one of my passions, actually. I love working with our pre-service brand new teachers, but I one of the greatest joys of my position here at Auburn is we are encouraged, we're a land-grant university, which requires us to have as part of our uh, work portfolio an outreach component, and I have dedicated the last 19 years to working with teachers doing professional development in a variety of capacities, and that has been a real privilege, and so in order to continue to improve our practice in terms of professional development. We did a lot of research into different models, and then we've conducted some research on the the outreach professional development projects that we've done. And that what got me invited to this is that I've published some pieces about a professional development format called lesson study that comes out of Japan. And it's not used very much here in the United States. And so it's been fun for me to kind of carve out a little bit of a niche there. And I'm really pleased that you invited me to be on the show because I am kind of passionate about this professional development format and I'll be happy to talk about it and answer questions about it. Well, you are the second person in the United States I know who is interested in lesson study. Our friend Jeff Carpenter, who was on episode 17, did his dissertation on lesson study. And I've read about it. And when I read about it, I was like, this sounds exactly like what everyone should be doing. So before we get into your research, I have a question. Do you know, I mean, do you know of, are there districts or universities or anyone that's really like adopted lesson study as a model in the United States? And is it been, can maintained? is it still prominent in Japan? Are there other countries? Yeah, it's very heavy in Japan. And I can talk about how it works there from what I understand, just from reading about it. I would love to go and actually see it happen, but um, I haven't been able to do that. But yeah, there's a lot of people that have used components of it. It's it's unfortunately a very resource intensive professional development model, as you can probably tell from the paper. It actually takes quite a bit of funding or commitment by a district or something. But Annalisa Halverson has done some interesting work at Michigan State. Kevin Wazen, um, I cite him in the paper. Uh, he did a version of lesson study. Um, Jay Howell and Lamont Maddox, Corey Callahan, myself. Gail Feeman actually did it in her methods classes, I know. And I think there's some, I'm sure there's others too. Catherine Lewis is one of the people that we've read and cite a lot. Um, she is not in social studies, but she's done a lot with lesson study. I think that the when we were learning about it, we watched some videos that the Oakland Public Schools put out and they really showed their model of doing it. And we fashioned a lot of our practices off of a, a project that they did there. So do you mind just, uh, before we kind of move forward, what is lesson study and how, and how would it work? Great, great question. So I made a couple of notes to myself. I'll try to weave these 
these in to, to your question, Michael, that are kind of based in some of, I was really happy to hear Dan's opener question because I think it was, it was great to hear, you know, the needs of the classroom teacher and maybe some of the strengths and weaknesses of the current professional development model that we use in the United States. But culturally, Japan sees teaching quite differently than we do in the United States. In the United States, we tend to see teaching as an independent act. And like all the teacher movies are kind of about some heroic individual that does some magical thing in their classroom all by themselves, and it can never be replicated again. And as a matter of fact, it usually kind of dies when they leave. And even you, Michael, talked about, you know, you're kind of in your classroom and you're just trying things and you're reflecting on those things, but it's almost, it's so rare to have anybody come in and observe you or for you to go and watch another teacher or even to get together with the other teachers in your building to talk about maybe a course that you're all teaching the same thing. So when you say we can't replicate uh, lessons, you're saying that we shouldn't all try to do the Dead Poets Society lesson where we take them to <laughs> pictures of dead people and then whisper in students' ears? <laughs> well, I guess you can try it. I don't know. And, and in lesson study, I can tell you how they would test that out, actually. So in Japan, they just have a, a really different vision of teaching. They see it more as a science that is a and that lesson design, the lesson itself is what makes a powerful instructional experience for a student, not the individual teacher. So they see it more as a science and less of an art. Um, in the United States, we kind of, because we're an individualistic kind of liberty oriented culture, I think we see teaching that way. One room schoolhouses, it's a long history. In Japan, a more communal cooperative culture, they see the lesson design, the lesson plan as really the, the driver of the student experience. So what, and they dedicate almost half of their day to planning in Japan. So how lesson study originally works in Japan is that a team of teachers would gather together and determine a goal, a learning goal for a particular concept or uh, a big idea that they want the students to learn and they would collaboratively develop a lesson. One teacher would volunteer to teach that lesson to students and the rest of the team would look, come in and observe the lesson and decide ahead of time specific aspect of the lesson that they want to think about and watch. Then they would gather as a collaborative team and they critique the lesson. And this is so important. They are not critiquing the teacher. They are critiquing the lesson. How did the instructions work? Where did we see the students get confused? Where could we have added a, a question to deepen their thinking? Was the assessment connected to the goal? Uh, you know, all those kinds of things. They would actually then sit down and then they will make revisions to the lesson, but it's our lesson. We collectively built it and we own it together. Then another teacher would volunteer to teach the revised lesson. The team comes in, they watch it, they revise the lesson and they keep doing that practice until it's ready to be showcased. And then they have almost like lesson study day where teachers from all over the country would come to a school and watch the teachers teach 
a lesson that has been revised so many times that they feel like almost anybody could take and use that lesson. So they just have a much more collaborative approach to teaching. And we took that model and attempted to try that in several different contexts. This paper that, you know, led to the invitation is one of many different formats of lesson study that we've attempted to use here in the the U.S. So before we go too much further, we should introduce the paper. Um, So first, congratulations on another publication in theory and research in social education. So this paper, you can, if you want to mention your co-authors too, you were the leader in in a large group here, and it is titled Investigating Teacher Adoption of Authentic Pedagogy through lesson study, which we've been talking about. So, so yeah, can you tell us more about this specific study? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And this was a large team effort. Um, so this was a collaborative effort as well. Uh, Dr. Jay Howell, Dr. John Say, Teresa McCormick, Colby Jones, Tom Brush, and Dave Shannon. This was part of a, again, this is, lesson study can be a very resource intensive project. And this was a very ambitious project. This was a Teaching American History grant that John Say got back when they still had those. And it was a three-year Um, multi-million dollar professional development experience. We worked with about 30 teachers from, I think, four or five. I say all this in the paper, but I'm a little vague on it. It doesn't matter. But there were several low-resourced districts within kind of driving distance of Auburn. So the format was we brought all of these teachers together, fourth through 12th grade, for two weeks in the summer. And we would do one week of modeling some persistent issues in history, kind of authentic pedagogy lessons. And we had content experts, historians come and give content presentations. In the second week, all the teachers were divided into grade level teams, a fourth grade team, a fifth grade team, a sixth, seventh grade team, et cetera. And they collaboratively developed their lessons over the course of that second week. And then in each year, we did that cycle. One teacher would teach the lesson in the fall and we would film it, but all the teachers got to come and watch the lesson in person. And then we met and revised and made adjustments to the lesson. Another teacher taught it in the spring, revised and retaught it. And then we created video cases that went up on our Persistent Issues in History website, which is unfortunately broken right now because it's kind of gotten old and we don't have funding to fix it right now. So I'm devastated about that, but we'll see if we can get that revised. But we did that for three years. And one thing that we were looking, one of the things that we were looking for was to what extent teachers would start to adopt some of these authentic pedagogy principles in lessons that they designed themselves. So we went and watched them teach the collaboratively designed research lessons, but we also watched the teachers teach a a lesson of their own design at the beginning and the end of the project with 12 of the focus teachers um, of those that participated. And what did you find? Well, we found that on average... So one thing that we found is that the teachers loved lesson study. So first of all, I should say that, that 
they had a lot to say, and we've we've published this in some other pieces as as well. But you know, I think one of the most valuable things that the teachers found was just the opportunity to do what you said, Michael, was to just be in the room with other people who taught the same subject and plan a lesson together. Um, they could plan a much more complex, intricate, nuanced, multiple perspectives. You know, it just takes a ton of research to write these really complicated, authentic lessons with authentic assessments and discussion of multiple points of view on ethical questions about a historical period. And it's a, you really do need a lot of people thinking it through and really looking at all of the, are we really getting all of the arguments that we need? And do we have all the perspectives that we can possibly find? And then refining it down to something that's manageable for the students. And the teachers love that. The other thing that they loved was watching other people teach a lesson that they helped create. They said every once in a while we get to go in and watch another teacher teach a lesson, but we didn't know, we don't know anything about what the goals are or what really was the point of that lesson. But when you helped create that lesson and you know what the goals were for the students and you get to go watch another teacher teach it, they said, you see things that you can't see when you're the one implementing it. And they just found it fascinating to go and, and watch that lesson that they shared be implemented in different classrooms and in different contexts and see similarities and differences between, you know, how students responded to the different materials or scaffolds or arguments and that kind of thing. So they loved that and they couldn't say enough good things about it. We probably had a limited effect on their independent practice. The, the majority of the teachers were able to implement the research lesson that we collaboratively made and to varying degrees. The independently developed lessons, which is what I report on in the paper, kind of had a mild effect overall. We looked at 12 teachers. Four of the teachers, though, made a lot of strides. They really did adopt, so that's about a third of the teachers. So in terms of, that's what we don't know a lot in our field about like the long-term transfer. You know, if, if Michael goes to a PD, what are the likelihood that that's gonna do anything to his classroom practice? Yeah, We just don't study that very much. And this is kind of one attempt at looking at that long-term transfer into the classroom. and. I think what we found is that school culture is, is a big driver of what teachers do. And for, for teachers to adopt this specific type of pedagogy that we were trying to teach, a lot has to change for them to really go all in on that. They really have to kind of change their epistemology about how they think what knowledge is and how it's created. They have to probably take on a new purpose for teaching, you know, more of a civic uh, preparation orientation. Um, they have to believe that risk-taking is a good thing, and that's that can be tough for a lot of teachers, both themselves and the students. You know, a lot of teachers try to protect their students from risk, and authentic pedagogy really requires students and teachers to take risks. So there are some factors that I, uh, but I think the main thing that we learned that is probably the toughest thing moving forward, and I'm not really sure I have good answers for this, is that without really 
not just lip service support from the administration, but like that is the way we're going to push you to teach and want you to teach. Teachers are very reluctant to adopt a new way of teaching if they're being evaluated on a different type of teaching. And all of the teachers in this study were in very low-resourced, high-accountability schools where lower-order tasks were, were kind of the order of the day, and student performance on those lower-order tasks was kind of the main way that teachers were evaluated. Pacing guides were a big deal. Um, and we were really trying to push them to go in depth and slow down and, you know, not cover wide swaths of time. So we were asking them to change quite a bit. Um, so we were actually pleased to see as much change as we did. But this was a heavily resourced project. So that's the downside of lesson study. And I don't have great answers for that unless like it really would take a principal to get excited about this and really want to, you know, get this to become part of the school culture. I do think one of the things I'm really interested in moving forward is one of the resource limitations is getting all of the teachers to go in and watch the lesson in person. So I'm going to try a small scale version of using swivel cameras and have the teacher who's going to volunteer to implement the lesson wear a swivel camera where we could just upload the video and then the teacher team could watch it on their own time and type some comments into the video, which would mean that we wouldn't have to pay for subs and get everybody out of class, you know, at a certain time. But it does require them to do that, you know, on their own time sometimes. So I'll have to pay them a small amount, a stipend or something. We currently work with a local school district that really bought into this. It's really how we got it started. We started with a project at a local local school probably 17 years ago, and we've been doing it every summer with the eighth grade and the ninth grade teachers. They collaboratively build a lesson, but what we haven't done very often is actually going in and watching them teach it and revise it and do that whole process. So I'm going to try to the pandemic, actually, I had, I was going to do it two years ago and the pandemic hit then in 2019 into 2020. So we had to cancel the project, but I'm going to see if I can use some technology tools that might allow the teachers to do that, revise and collaborate so that we kind of keep, keep the momentum going instead of just building the lesson in the summer and hope somebody teaches it. I like that we're getting all these, like all of your ideas on how to actually make this work. It seems like you're almost not on the fly, but like these are things you're currently kind of like pondering over, which is. Yeah. And, and trying and doing it. Yeah. And I've, we've also added some new components of using video reflection. You know, the, the traditional model that we started with was that we, we filmed it, but we didn't really have the teachers watch the film. They just came in and watched the lesson because that's kind of the model that we learned, but we've also done some work where we've had the teachers watch the film kind of intentionally with some teacher noticing questions that are kind of designed to maybe focus the teachers on the student learning more than the behavior of the students. And that's been interesting. I haven't had time to send that piece out for publication. So I've got several projects in the drawer that need to get, get out. 
um, because it, I do think there's a lot here that's really interesting. And it is a, I think it's such a powerful model, but it really would require, you know, some administrative funding and support and some cover for the teachers to, in, you know, because part of it's my goal is to, you know, get help teachers maybe teach a little bit differently, not such in a traditional way, but a more student inquiry oriented way. And that, that would require the culture of the school to own that too. I wasn't surprised when you uh, <clears throat> said the challenge is institutional, right? Because I was, yeah. I was about to say that is like any of these changes, like if you don't change the things that everyone's being judged on, right? Like if testing is still driving, you know, things, then it's hard to like prioritize for teachers to prioritize other things because we're all trying to complete what's in front of us and succeed by the metrics that, you know, we're measured by. And so when I've seen change, it's because the people at the top embrace it and support it and make it part of the institution. And I've seen that with, you know, whether it's, you know, culturally sustaining or anti-racist pedagogies, right? Teachers can do that on their own and some will, some won't, but until the institution supports it, will you really see like change across the curriculum? And so I, I figure it's the same with this. The, the other thing I was just thinking about is just how, indiv- you mentioned this, how individualistic are, met, are you know, ways of, of giving teachers feedback are, right? Usually it's a principal comes into your room, takes notes, they're busy. They don't really get to, it's not a topic they get to think about usually. I always know, I had principals come in my room to observe me who would have no experience to like make comments really on my teaching right? Like they weren't social studies teachers often. They just like had been out of the classroom for a while. And some of them didn't even like weren't good teachers themselves. We had a lot of like former, I hate to say it, but former coach teachers who went into administration who didn't care deeply about teaching. That was the reality at our school. They weren't all bad principals because some of them supported us, right? And like gave us space. But that individual model, I never, I never had a good like a time when I got really good feedback during my teaching career, except from like my colleagues who I would talk with during lunch. So I don't understand why, like we, we aren't doing things like this, which makes so much more sense. Yeah. I think it's really powerful. And I do think that, and so I think schools could do it, but I think what's been powerful about our experience is bringing in this we kind of use like a three-legged stool approach because I think earlier in, in your introduction, you know, Michael, you were talking about like you try something and you see how your students react, you know, like even like the physical faces and stuff of the students and you're, you're kind of seeing like how the students are engaging with the materials. And so then you try it a different way. And that's the deep, um, we quote Hebert a lot, and um, I can put some citations in the show notes for him, but he created this kind of idea that teachers bring a craft knowledge, a really deep understanding of their students and their community and their culture, and what kind of things connect with their students and like the cultural funds of knowledge and things like that, that would really resonate with their students. And then the researcher like the teacher educator can come in with this more public, testable, generalized knowledge about pedagogy. 
And then we've added the content expert that the teachers really appreciate. And it's so helpful when we can have funding to hire, you know, a historian or a political scientist or an economist or something that comes in and helps the teachers with those content questions in order to really get the lesson deep and get into the critical concepts and the big ideas and make sure that we aren't teaching it superficially. And that blending of the researcher knowledge and the teacher craft knowledge can kind of create what Hebert called the professional teaching knowledge that we could work collaboratively. And that's one of the reasons that we as teacher educators have really liked this model is that it is not us coming in and telling teachers what you should be doing. It is us coming and saying, what are your goals for your students? What do you want them to learn? Why is this important? And how could we support you and kind of facilitate this process to maybe help you take that idea that you have and make it something really powerful that your whole department of teachers um, could do. And that's what's been kind of cool about working with a local school for such a long time is that they've just kind of created that as their culture, that they do this every summer. Uh, we spend three days working on, you know, kind of one of these persistent issues in history lessons every summer. And it just kind of becomes part of the way that they bring in their new teachers. They just, when they hire people, they're like, this is an expectation and we do this. And the school pays them, you know, the school pays the teachers their stipend and they pay us to come and we get, you know, advice from the local historians here at Auburn. And it's been a really powerful format. So what advice do you have for teachers who would like to attempt to, to do a lesson study or to be involved in a lesson study group? What advice would you give? Do it, I guess. Um, I would, I would just maybe read a few articles about it. We can put some things in the show notes. I can put, you know, a few that I've done, but there's a lot of other people out there that have have done it. And of course, there's a lot of good citations actually in this paper. So I would encourage people to look at that. But basically, it's not a complicated thing. You know, you just get a group of teachers that are teaching the same topic and figure out what are our learning goals? What, what is it? What's the big idea? Pick a, pick a lesson that's you're struggling to help your students grasp. It's important. I think one of the things that's important is for you guys to, the teachers should like decide on what the learning goal is. And I will say that I think that's one of the struggles in social studies because we as a field don't agree about what the purpose of social studies is. <laughs> so, you know, we're a contested field and we always have been. And so teachers do struggle to come with a shared vision of the learning goals. Whereas I think some of the, our other disciplines, math and science, um, I think it's easier for them. But if you can decide on what your learning goal is, that would be step one. And then build a lesson. And remember that it's our lesson. We built it together. We own it together. And it's the lesson that we're working, working with. It's not a performance and we're not critiquing someone's performance, but we're, we're revising the lesson. You have somebody teach it, go watch it or film it, you critique it, you try it again, and you just keep doing it. And I think people will be, be pleasantly amazed at how invigorating that can be to think through the nuances of good lesson. And I think what 
I think what's cool about it is that you start to see that there is kind of some pedagogical aspects to this lesson design that then you can apply to your other lessons. I think people will start to realize, oh yeah, like scaffolding matters. And if kids are confused, maybe it's just a matter of adding another question or two, or maybe we should switch the order of how this happens. Maybe we just need a better question at the beginning to engage the students. We had a great lesson, but they didn't care. They didn't want to do it. We need a better, you know, and it's through those conversations of how do we solve the problem? It's not the students and it's not you, the performer of the teacher, it's the lesson. And what do we need to do to make that lesson as powerful as possible? I think it just changes the conversation. It makes it less personal. It makes it something like a, a problem that we can all collaboratively solve together. And it's just, I think it's professionally invigorating. So here, here's my idea for higher ed lesson study, because it's a little more challenging because oh, cool. we're because we're very spread out often, right? We do have some people in our building, but like if you're teaching like a social studies methods class, you may be the only person on your campus. So now that we're all more adept at video conferencing after, you know, after enduring, I guess I should say during the COVID pandemic, um, although everyone's back in school seemingly still, I, it would be really cool to like connect with people and like kind of trade lessons to say, hey, why don't you video conference into my class and lead us through the lesson that you're most passionate about and then I'll do the same to your class so that we get to be learners. And I've just been thinking about how I just don't get to be a learner a lot as a, in, you know, since I've been in higher ed or even as a teacher. Um, so anyway, uh, just let me know, Dr. Kohlmeyer, when you're coming to teach my class. <laughs> well, but I do think you're on to something like, I think what would be even more powerful is for a bunch of teacher educators to sit in a room and say, okay, this is something I want my students to learn. Let's build an, let's build an experience together and then each teach it and potentially each teach record it, it yeah. and critique it next year at KUFA or whatever, you know, like that's a good idea. All right. I'm in. I'm I in. like Where's how the, the, I like how the first step seems to be, as Leslie Nope would say, find your team. Yep. She's a yeah. character on Parks and Rec. I'm obligated <laughs> yes. to talk about Parks and Rec every now and then. That was in the finale. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I think sorry. it's also interesting, like normally it's done in a building, but I don't, I think with, um, technology, it wouldn't have to be, you know, I think there's some strengths and weaknesses to doing it within your sure. building. Sure. And then with people that aren't in your building, I think there's some pros and cons to both. And I think there's a lot of, that's actually something I suggest at the end of the paper that I've always been interested in is I'd like to even do that with our graduates. A lot of times our graduates go off, you know, and they are the only teacher somewhere trying to do the things that they learn to do in our program and they quit because they feel unsupported. Maybe we could do it with them as they graduate. There's just all kinds of ideas of ways that uh, I think technology would allow us to build a community. Like you said, Michael, find your team and it doesn't necessarily have to be geographically specific. Well, all right, as you said, let's do it. <laughs> thank you so much, Jada Kohlmeyer, for, for joining us today and talking with us about this. Oh, thank you. I, I always enjoy talking about this and I appreciate you showing some interest and sharing it with others. So, And thanks for doing this. I think this is really cool that you guys have done this for so long. I don't know if you ever think, oh man, I wish I wouldn't have started this, but yeah, I, I think this is a great, a great addition to the field and also a way for, for educators of all kinds to continue to grow and, and be professional. So I appreciate this work that you do. 
Thank you. And uh, we always tell everyone it's like, it's like our best way to learn. So we really love doing it for that reason too. And um, so people can keep learning from you. Where can they find you or your work online? Uh, in the journals. I'm so, te- I'm so on technology. I don't know. I don't do social media. I, I guess I just have to go to the journals. We'll put some, I can put some citations in the show notes. So for you, <laughs> that will work just fine. We don't all need to have all our stuff plastered online. Um, so that works just fine. We'll, we'll make sure we get everything linked. So thank you again so much for joining us. We do certainly hope to continue the discussion in our lesson study groups with our team members, and, you know, wherever we are. At the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun for creative education, or you just want to chat, and we get it, we're here too. Tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also sometimes on Facebook. And if you haven't already, and really, please, feel free. Subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be. And if you and your lesson study group want to get together and write us five-star reviews, the first person can write one, everyone can critique, then the next person writes one, then everyone critique. By the end, the five-star review will be perfected and we will get this podcast to lots of people because that's how the algorithms work on Apple Podcasts. And we would, of course, like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for his editing skills. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 4260. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.